Friends, I want to ask you to open your Bible with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Luke 18 is found on page 877 of your Pew Bible. And this morning, we continue the series that we started a week ago called Generous King, Generous People. Last week was the foundational message in this series as we explored from 1 Chronicles chapter 29 the overwhelming generosity that God gives toward us. That He and He alone is the majestic King of the universe who owns everything. And that He does not have to give us anything at all, but He chooses to generously give to us and it says in 1 Chronicles 29 that he gives honor and that he gives riches and that he gives the ability to do great things. And consequently, that all of our forms of generosity, and particularly the forms of generosity that are directed back to God, are really an act in which we are simply giving back to him what he already possesses. And if you haven't quite grasped that concept and some of its implications uh, for your life, then growing in generosity is going to be an ongoing struggle. And so I don't often do this, but I would commend to you, if you missed it last week, for whatever reason, to go back and to listen to that because it is a perspective-altering truth for how you live your life. And we want to grow in generosity, don't we? We want to be generous people. The generous king makes us generous people. And as we said, generosity is a disposition. It's a disposition of being open-minded or open-handed and abundant in our giving. It does not only relate to money, generosity. It also relates to our goods, to our time, to our efforts. And there's a difference, as we said, between an act of generosity versus a disposition of generosity. A disposition is an outlook on life. A disposition is a lifestyle choice. And when you understand God's generosity and the ongoing nature of his generosity our natural response is to look at our lives differently than we did before. Now, we say that generosity does not only relate to money or material possessions, but as we all know, money is probably the most tangible or pointed expression of generosity. And it also represents one of the greatest struggles for our Christian life. And so the Bible addresses the topic of money at great length. Did you know that in the Bible there are over 2,300 verses that are pertaining to money? 2,300 verses. Did you know that over one-third of Jesus' parables are addressing money? And that in the Gospel of Luke alone, there are 41 conversations regarding money. And as I was thinking about that the other day and thinking about those statistics, I was thinking about now the number of years I've been a pastor here and 
at our previous church and now the hundreds of sermons that I've had the opportunity to preach, uh, which is a great joy for me. And I can honestly say that some of the sermons that have made people the most upset are not sermons on the doctrine of unconditional election. They're not sermons on the nature of an eternal hell. They're not sermons on human sexuality, and they're not typically sermons on church discipline. The sermons that people have been upset about, the sermons that some had even gotten up and walked out of, are sermons on money. And the reason for that is that money is one of the biggest rivals to God for our allegiance. And we see that in two stories in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18 and chapter 19, that we'll look at today. In Luke, these two stories are nearly back-to-back with each other, The short interlude in between, it's not a coincidence that the story of the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus, the tax collector, are right near each other. They provide for us a sharp contrast that leads to a common theme throughout the Bible that how we approach our resources, how we approach our money, is a major spiritual issue in your life with God. And so let's look at Luke chapter 18 together. Luke chapter 18, the first story, starts at verse 18, and this is what it says. It says, And a ruler asked him, him being Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. And then Jesus, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come. Follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Well, then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you that there is no one who has left his house or his wife or his brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Our money can be an obstacle to our allegiance to God. Let's make a couple of observations. 
The story of the rich young ruler is a story about the actions of a man, but much more than that, it is a story about the attitude of a man. The ruler expresses spiritual desires and a desire to do the right thing. I mean, look at the dialogue. He desires eternal life. He calls Jesus good teacher. He's kept the commandments to the best of his recollection. And at face value, this guy seems to have it all. This is a good person. He even moves beyond the sort of idea of being good generally. And his expressions of goodness are directed toward God specifically. By all measures, this would be the guy that most of us would look up to. You would probably look at him and his life and you would attribute his wealth to God's hand of blessing upon him. And you would look at the way that he was living in the midst of that wealth and you would say, that's the type of life I want to live. I mean, he cares about the right types of things or so it seems. His response is good. He's the type of guy that's living a godly life. And so Jesus adds a test. He says to the man, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And the response is the man went away very sad because he was extremely rich. Why did Jesus do that? I mean, we know that there's no amount of money you can give away that's going to gain you eternal life. We know that there's no number of good works that you can do that's going to gain you eternal life. So why did Jesus do that? The reason why is that Jesus was probing this man's heart. A person can do a bunch of good things and still not be fully committed to the Lord. You can do things in the Lord's name and still not fully trust in his provision. And having wealth could be a sign of God's blessing. And in fact, in some places in the scripture, it seems to be so. (laughs) But here, having wealth actually proves to be a curse for this man. This is why Jesus talks about money so much. Not because money itself is evil or bad, but because having a lot of money means that often our allegiance to the world becomes so much stronger. Money is one of the biggest obstacles toward our allegiance to God. And God shares allegiance with nothing. And notice, Jesus doesn't just ask him to give all his money away. He offers him an alternative reward. 
it sounds like he's offering him a trade. Give your money away to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Which one would the young ruler desire more? What the earth has to offer or what heaven has to offer? Where does this man find his security? Does he find it in the material wealth of the earth that provide for him greatly? Or does he find his security in the promise of the Son of God and the eternal dynamic of heaven? This was an examination of the heart. Where does his allegiance lie? To the things of the world or to the things of God? Where does your allegiance lie? Where does your security reside? What is the source of your protection, the things of the world or the person of God? Going into this encounter with Jesus, this man would have almost undoubtedly said that his allegiance rests with God. (laughs) So too would many of us. But I wonder if you look at yourself and you look at this question carefully, what does it reveal about you? What would be revealed if Jesus asked you to do the same thing that he asked this man to do? Standing right in front of you with a trade. Jesus finishes this this encounter with incredibly difficult words. He says how difficult it is For those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. The issue, as we've said, is not simply the money. (laughs) It's what the money does. Money can cause us to place our allegiance with the world. It would take a miracle, Jesus says, for somebody to break away from the kind of allegiance that money creates. It would take a miracle, like a camel going through the eye of a needle, to break away from that kind of allegiance. I mean, there is no possible way that a person under their own power could break away from the strong temptation of the allegiance to the world. The houses are way too nice. The cars are too fast. The food is much too tasty. And the opportunity for entertainment is seemingly endless. And oh, the vacations. It would, it's impossible to break away from that kind of allure and allegiance. And for most of us, this is very, very bad news. Because by the standards of the world... Today, most of us are quite wealthy. (laughs) And if you take a step back and you just scan human history to the best of our knowledge, then all of us are quite, quite wealthy. And it's not getting easier. You know this to be true. You hear something like this and you say, but 
there's college to pay for for my kids, and there's retirement that I have to save for, and the car is nearing its replacement date, and the carpet needs to be replaced in the house, and how do I untether myself from the allegiance that I have to the world is seemingly impossible. So impossible that it would take a miracle for it to happen. But here's the good news. Jesus says in verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And that leads us to the story of the man who was the camel who went through the eye of the needle. His name is Zacchaeus. So I want you to flip the page over to chapter 19 of Luke and look at verses 1 through 10 with me. And as you're turning, let me introduce you to Zacchaeus and the sign of a regenerate heart. Zacchaeus was the top of the tax cartel in Jericho. I call it a tax cartel because it functioned much like a pyramid scheme in which they collected taxes from the Jews to give to the Romans and the guys at the top of the scheme got a cut from all the guys underneath them. And it was fairly common for the tax collectors to prop up the tax rate so they could skim a little extra off the top for their commissions for themselves and pay the rest of the guys up the ladder. And thus, these people were not popular in any way, shape, or form with their fellow Jews. They were considered to be operatives of the Romans and corrupt traitors in their time. Verse 2 tells us that Zacchaeus was the chief of them. (laughs) He was the chief tax collector and was rich. In this sense, you can start to see the picture that this Zacchaeus was literally a filthy, rich, little man. (laughs) And the little man was living rather large until he met Jesus. So look at verse 3 with me as we pick up the story. It says that he, Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was so small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus' response to Jesus was the exact opposite of the response of the rich young ruler. Where the ruler holds his wealth to himself in response to Jesus... Jesus doesn't even seem to ask Zacchaeus, the tax collector, for anything. But 
without prompting, after interacting with Jesus probably for some time, he says that he's going to make restitution. That he is going to pay back anyone he's defrauded and give them fourfold what he's taken. But that wasn't the end. His heart had been changed. And this new heart was overflowing with generosity. And he gives half of his goods to the poor. The camel has walked through the eye of the needle. What is impossible for man is possible with God. And Jesus concludes, today salvation has come to this house. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And if you think Jesus is just talking about money, you're missing the point. What's the difference between the two rich men? The ruler didn't have a change of heart. Zacchaeus did. And the sign of the unchanged heart was that he clung to his allegiance to the world by clinging to his possessions. But the sign of the regenerate heart of Zacchaeus was that now he was generous with his possessions, which was a sign of his allegiance not to the world, but of his allegiance to God. And there are some incredible implications here for us. Four that come immediately to mind. The first is it's possible. It might not seem like it's possible. It might not feel to you like it's possible. When you hear topics on generosity, you might say, I'm just barely getting by with what I have. I don't even know how to reorient my life in such a way where dispositional generosity is a possibility. But it's possible to be released from our allegiance to the world. Implication number two is that God and God alone makes it possible. He's the one who can take us from being tight-fisted or self-centered or having an allegiance to the world. This is a result of the gospel. That Jesus comes and when we put our faith in him to forgive us of our sins, that we entrust our lives to him as a result. We entrust our future to him as a result. We surrender our will to him as a result. And it's so interesting that for some of us, we're, we claim to trust the Lord Jesus with our eternal future, while at the same time, in our present actions, not even trusting him with the checkbook today. <laughs> but when we surrender to him completely, he frees us from what is ultimately a form of unfulfilling slavery in our allegiance to the world and opens up possibilities of what it means to live in allegiance to God. I think the third implication is that when we put our faith in Jesus, that allegiance changes. God, yes, makes it possible. Yes, he removes one type of allegiance from the world, but it's replaced with a different type of allegiance, an allegiance to Jesus. Our identity changes, and so do our priorities and our allegiance. Think about the nature of allegiance with me for a second. What does that mean? Allegiance, by definition, is just simply devotion or loyalty. 
That's what it means to have allegiance to something or someone. Devotion or loyalty. And certain types of allegiances automatically seem to eliminate other types of allegiances, don't they? For example, in 1944, if you were expressing your allegiance to the United States of America, it necessarily meant that you could not have allegiance to Nazi Germany. Because I have allegiance, devotion, or loyalty to my wife, it necessarily means that I can't have that same kind of allegiance to other women. (laughs) And if you have put your faith in Christ and therefore have allegiance to God and to the purposes of God, this means that you necessarily don't continue with allegiance to the world and to the purposes of the world. How do you express the purposes of the world? Well, we could talk about it in a variety of ways, but typically they're expressed in the terms of the self. What can I get for myself or my family? What will make me the most comfortable? What will make me the most secure? What will make me the most happy? Everyone is out for their own, and you get the best and the most that you possibly can for you, and then you give sparingly as you see fit. But the purposes of God? The purposes of God are found in Jesus' expression coming to seek and to save the lost. (laughs) The purposes of God mean that more and more people are growing into the likeness of Jesus. The Apostle Paul expresses this in a number of ways in the New Testament, perhaps most beautifully in Philippians chapter 1, when he says, it's better for me to go and be with the Lord, to die here in jail. But for you, he says in verse 25, I will continue for you, for your progress and joy in the faith. Other-centered purposes of God, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ. That is a different kind of allegiance than the world offers. And the fourth implication is that our money reflects or points to the nature of our allegiance. And in this way, you see the contrast between the two men. Generosity is a reflection of a regenerate heart. (laughs) You might say it this way. Generosity is an expression of our allegiance to God with our money. It's so interesting, isn't it? Jesus asks one man to give everything. He gives nothing. Jesus doesn't ask the other man to give anything, and he gives almost everything. And then just a couple chapters later in chapter 21, they're observing a woman who's coming to worship God, and she drops two copper coins into the kettle, and Jesus says, blessed is her because she, out of her poverty, gave everything that she has. Generosity is an expression of our allegiance to God with our money. And so don't miss the point. We're not talking 
necessarily just about tithing here. Tithing is the pattern of regular Christian giving that we see in the Old Testament, and many have extended on today. It's the giving of 10% of your income to the Lord in honor and worship to him. It's the law in the Old Testament. And in fact, in the Old Testament, the people of God, the Jews, would give approximately 23% of their income to God through the tithe, through the temple tax, and through other forms of giving. That's the law. But just because you follow the letter of the law doesn't mean that you trust God. It doesn't mean that you have your security resting for your future in him. It doesn't mean following the letter of the law means that you've put your faith in him and are devoted to his agenda. Jesus is talking about generosity. In that sense, you can still somewhat be stingy and tithe, even though it's hard for some of us to imagine. You can still be faithless and tithe, but a regenerate heart leads to a generous disposition. Generosity is an expression of our allegiance to God with our money. And so the Christian person is a person who is generous and ever-growing in generosity. I think as much as we look at the wonderful example of Zacchaeus, in some ways this isn't maybe the most common in that his generosity was seemingly immediate. (laughs) I think for most of us, generosity is part of our growth that we slowly and surely, God whittles away the edges of our allegiance to the world and continues to grow us in our allegiance to him. And a Christian person then is generous with their time, with their house, with their car, with their food. They look at their whole life as their possessions are not even their own. They are belonging to God and they are the simple conduit or funnel by which those possessions move for the purposes of God. That's what it looks like to reflect God's grace. That's what it looks like to go through the eye of a needle. Meeting Christ loosens our hold on our stuff because we realize that our stuff is just an expression of a temporary reality. So let's grow. Let's grow in generosity together. When you look at your money, what does it say about where you place your allegiance? How do you begin to untether an allegiance to the world that is so strong that it would take a miracle for you to get away from? We're going to continue to talk about that in coming weeks. I've heard it said that giving becomes generosity when, you, when there are things that you choose to forego for the sake of being generous. Giving becomes generosity when you say, I'm not going to do those things so that I can be generous. And we'll have examples of that moving forward. But as we close, I want to just consider one thing with you. How does God use generosity? How does God take everything that we have that is ultimately everything he has and he has much more? And how does he use it for his purposes? What does an allegiance to the kingdom look like? Well, Thursday night I was getting ready for bed around 11 p.m. and my phone rang and the number 
was from Kenya. I typically don't pick up phone calls from the middle of Africa at 11 p.m. at night. But I had an idea of who it was. It was Pastor Daniel. I've never met Pastor Daniel before, and he has never met me. But for the past few years, Old North has been sponsoring a multi-day pastor's training among the Maasai tribe in Kenya out in the bush. And multiple times a year, one of our members, Carol Perkins, as you know, goes and ministers among those people. Other members have gone uh, to be among that tribe and to serve them. Some of our members have financed and built wells. Others have physically built or funded the building of structures for churches. Some have helped out with housing for the ministers and transportation for them. Nothing in return. Generosity. Expressions of their allegiance to God. (laughs) There's a great gospel need among those people. And it seems like there's a growing hunger for God among them. And Daniel was calling me at 11 p.m. on Thursday night to thank me for being so generous. But he wasn't really thanking me. He was thanking you. And he spoke about what was happening. And he would say things like, oh, my pastor. Now remember, I've never met him. Oh, my pastor. There were over 50 pastors here for this training. Oh, my pastor, you don't know. These men have eaten better this past week than they've eaten for a year. Oh, my pastor, these men, many of them are untrained. They have nothing. They live in the bush. They're learning God's word, and then they're going back, and they're passing it on to the people that God has put in their churches. Thank you, Pastor, for your generosity. Thank you for caring about us. May God bless you and bless your church. Generosity. And it was your giving that did that. And who knows what the effects will be. That's not up to you. It's not up to me. That part is up to God. But just think. Just imagine what it would be like, what God would do if we continued to grow in generosity. If our disposition moved from being generous in instances to having dispositional generosity around us. As individuals in our families and our homes and corporately as a church family. Think about allegiance to the king and to the kingdom that's ever expanding. Imagine more ministry at YSU. More ministry in this region as we help and equip churches in Bible teaching and preaching. More ministry partners in the world. More churches being planted. More men and women and boys and girls being saved. More people growing into the likeness of Jesus. That is the agenda of the kingdom. And when you're involved in the purposes of God, you focus on that agenda. Each and every one of us making a proclamation every single day about where our allegiance lies. (laughs) And generosity is at the center of it. Generosity is the expression of our allegiance to God. 
with our money. And I pray that as we consider the scriptures, we continue to grow in this disposition. And that over the next coming weeks that we continue to think practically about how to express our allegiance more directly to the Lord and not to the world. But it's hard. It's hard. But the joy that comes on the other end is worth it. Let's pray together and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you that you are so generous to us that when we really stop and take inventory of the ways that you have given to us, chiefly in the sacrifice of your son, who though he was rich became poor, that we might become rich in you. But beyond that, in all kinds of practical measures, we thank you. We worship you. We want to be generous. Help us, God, to grow in this, we pray. Amen.